Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to what is sure to be a fantastic episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or also you can email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So I'm very excited to chat with today's guest, Simon Napier-Bell. Simon has witnessed and shaped so many moments in pop history and pop culture history, far beyond just the 1980s. He matched the man who I think had a Undoubtedly a huge influence on the British New Wave and New Romantic movements, which is Mark Bolin. He's also managed Japan, Ultravox, Sinead O'Connor, and others. He's worked with everyone from the Yardbirds to Burt Bacharach to Dusty Springfield. But today I have Simon on to discuss probably, you know, arguably his biggest star client and certainly one of the most important artists of the 1980s and one who's really having a well-deserved moment right now, the late, great George Michael. This year, George is finally getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, very overdue. And the recent Netflix documentary, Whams, put a lot of focus on his early 80s beginnings. But Simon, who, along with being Wham's manager back in the day, is also the director of another must-see documentary, The Real George Michael, which is available to stream now. So I'm excited to talk about The Real George Michael and really get into it. It's going to be a real deep dive into the importance of George's legacy from one of the people who knew him best. Welcome to Toliades. Without further ado, Simon Napier-Bell. Thank you, Lindsay. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you. You're actually in Thailand at the moment. So this is a true international conversation we're going to have. That's right. Early morning in Thailand. Yep. It's fitting because George Michael is an international star, beloved everywhere. I guess the most logical place to start is from the beginning. I want to know how you discovered Wham. I think they'd already maybe been around for a little bit, maybe a couple of singles, Wham Rap or Young Guns and maybe come out. And then you saw something and you swooped in to take them to the next level, from what I understand. So why don't you tell me what, how that came about? Well, that's right. I mean, I had a partner, uh, another manager. And uh, we both met up one day. And we said, did you see those guys on Top of the Pops last night? Top of the Pops is our, was our absolute best TV show in the UK and very much a national TV show. 18 million kids, that's a third of the entire population, watch this wow. show every night. And um, there was a new group had been on the night before. And uh, they were sensational. They, they weren't sensational in any sort of super professional way. They were sensational because you knew it was the first time they'd been on and they delivered in a way we'd never seen before. They... They must have rehearsed for weeks in their in their bedrooms and be getting the thing right. And we both said, "Weren't they amazing? Let's let's go after them. Let's try and get them for management." Uh, and that was why. So this is the famous top of the pops performance, which. Yeah. I say this in the most loving and like positive way. It almost was like a little bit of a school play or a musical. Like they're acting out the Young Guns lyrics, you know, with George being like, "Hey, sucker, what the?" You know, like, "Why are you with this chick?" Never seen anything like it. 
No, I mean, because it was it, it was both amateur in the, in the sense you're saying, you know, it's like young kids, but it's mm -hmm. incredibly, incredibly professional. They mm -hmm. knew how to turn to camera. You know, when you see Top of the Pops, the new act comes on, it's their first hit. They're usually a bit gauche. They don't understand the camera. They don't understand how to perform. These guys, it's as if they've been doing television for years and years and years. And they knew how to turn to camera to play to the play to the camera like it was an audience. It was so professional, and what they were delivering was amateur, as you said. So it was like watching a book. It's like watching Glee, you know, actors <laughs> a, actors acting being unprofessional. Uh, it was charming, in most, you know, char charming way, absolutely, and it was sensational. And we said, look, this this group are amazing. We've got to grab them and take them up to the very top. Uh, and we went off to find them and. Um, well, that was history since then. Absolutely. We're going to get into that history. But I wonder if you can solve this mystery for me. So famously, that Top of the Pops performance, they, you know, and this is in both of your documentary and the Wham! documentary that Chris Smith did, they'd kind of stalled on the charts. They really, this was kind of their last chance. They were kind of just bubbling under the top 40. And they got this last minute slot on Top of the Pops. It changed everything and brought them onto your radar because someone dropped out. Do we know who dropped out? No. Andrew Richley doesn't know either. No, I know. What we do know is that uh, to get on top of the Fox, you had to be in the top 40. And it was all set up, ready to go. And then the day before the show went on, somebody dropped out. And the next down the list was wham, we were 47. And they'd given up. When they heard the record only got to 47, it's their second single. The first wasn't a hit. And they said, oh, that's it. We're never going to be stars suddenly the phone call. But you see, they'd been rehearsing for weeks anyway because they were so self-confident that they thought they were going to you know, leap into the charts from the top 10. So they were saved and off they went. And my God, they did well. Yeah, they did. With with your help, of course. It's interesting that era of Wham! Uh, and George Michael's career is actually my favorite. And it's interesting the perception that both the music critics who at that time were, were kind to Wham! Things unfortunately changed later. But the critics and myself, they were called socially conscious funk, you know, social warriors, you know, uh, youth warriors. I actually thought they were a hip hop act or a rap act. They, when it was very it was very interesting. The first two songs they did, first of all, Wham Rap and then this Young Guns, was slightly, I mean, Wham Rap was about being on the dole, and, you know, why should we be 18 and we go to school and we get all these educational qualifications, we still end up the dole. It was a bad period in English, you know, the budget was bad and things were going badly. Um, and so a lot of the critics, and the music critics in the 80s tended to be slightly political and left-wing, and uh, they all saw, the, oh, good, this is a group who are going to, you know, make social complaints and, and stand by and left wing and, you know, uh, be, be slightly political. And they weren't at all. Then George and Andrew had planned to sell teenagery for, for what it is, you know, fun and going out and enjoying yourself. Um, but the first two songs gave the critics the feeling this was going to be a socially conscious act. And perhaps that helped them because the critics were kind and, and helped them on their way. And once they were on their way, George switched and, you know, he came later with, songs like Waking Up Before You Go-Go, which were pure hedonism. And Club Tropicana is like maybe the ultimate Absolutely. hedonistic anthem. I know that's where things started to change. But before we get into that, because as I just mentioned, uh, George Michael's getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So like, uh, and, you know, had an amazing solo career, which might have even been fueled by the fact that he wanted to prove those detractors wrong. But, you know, for at the beginning, they were considered teen idols, so they didn't get the respect. But I want to go back to, I mentioned that early on you managed 
T-Rex and, and Mark Boland, John's children. And I see some parallels between, you know, even though there's obviously differences in how sadly their, their careers went and, you know, but they, you know, they had meteoric rises, lots of female fans, screaming girls, camera loved them, super charismatic. Then things started to take a dark turn. When you um, look back on managing Mark Boland and managing George Michael. I mean, do you see any parallels? Obviously, Mark definitely influenced a lot of people from the British generation George came from. Well, there's several parallels. One is that nearly all artists are incredibly similar. The artists were born from some sort of teenage angst, and they all have this incredible, powerful drive, desire to be successful. And of course, when they're 17 or 18, that drive for success makes them look at, a, at an audience of their own age, of a teenage audience. So they do start off usually looking at a teenage market because they understand it, they're part of it. You know, they are even for, even the market for their own music, you know. They sort of love their own music and see themselves, you know, objectively as, as the teenagers they'd like to be and like to listen to. So there's that similarity. And they were both very self-aware people and uh, extremely musical, com musically confident and produced and made and wrote all their own music. Those parallels. Uh, and both of them actually really wanted that teenage market and then later on wanted to try and prove themselves better than that. But that just goes with the age. You, know, you get to 22, 23, you want an older market. It's, it's natural. Well, it's interesting, you know, I've gone on my soapbox about this many times when talking about everyone from Duran Duran to George Michael to Harry Styles in One Direction is it seems like when you start off with that teen audience and particularly if you start off with a lot of young girls liking you and for the record, being a former young girl myself. Young girls always have their fingers on the pulse. I mean, they're the ones that got behind the Beatles in the beginning, you know, but a lot of times when you have that kind of fan base those stodgy critics dismiss you. Oh, they're a band that girls like. There's a little bit of misogyny in that and actually maybe even some homophobia as well. So is that something that you see, you know, looking at how uh, a lot of the people that you match, not just Mark Boland, George Michael, actually even David Sylvia in Japan. They were a very interesting band because David Sylvia in Japan was a band who, who broke themselves with the teenage audience, but they had a, uh, deviating, but very young audience, so 12 or 13, but their music wasn't teenage music at all. Um, but, you know, and so the audience stayed with them and, and matured with their music. But Wham was, you know, the, Wham had, was teenage music. It was aimed totally at teenagers. So for George later to move out of that, he had to change the music he was making. But he also began to change that music even while he was in, in Wham. So he had those two solo singles while mm -hmm. Wham was still continuing, he had solo singles, which were much less teenage -y. What were the solo? Because they were built differently here in America. Careless Whisper here was billed as Wham featuring George Michael to sort of like set the tone. It was a solo single, but in, in America, the first two singles didn't really happen in America. So when we got, when Wake Me Up Before You Go Go came out, it was like the first single in America. And to mm -hmm. come straight after that with a single which wasn't wham was just going to be too difficult, too too conflicting. And so we decided with the record company, okay, we call Killers Whisper Wham featuring George Michael. And then it went back to just wham. But uh, after that, there was another one, a, a different corner, a very, you know, introspective, angst-ridden single um, that went to number one too. And it was nothing to do with wham, both in tone and the way it was delivered. Yeah. And then, and then, George went straight back to being part of Wham. The next single after that was a Wham single, all up and bouncy and fun, 
Um, he was he was very clever at building two markets at once. First of all, building Wham, and then building himself as a solo act while he went on with Wham. Well, I'd love to get your insight as someone who was managing him during this time, this transitional time. Lots of bands change over time. I mean, I just mentioned the Beatles, right? I mean, the Beatles, you know, they start off going, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the end, they're putting out Abbey Road. It's like not even the same band. So like, why was there this idea that George Michael had to go solo in order to evolve and mature his sound and his image, as opposed to just not like still call it Wham and still do it with Andrew? But the sound changes over the course of, I mean, they they could have put out many more albums under the name Wham had he wanted to. I mean, they broke up at their peak. No, no, Lynn, that's not true. Wham was a specific image. It was two okay. teenage kids. And it was a very Hollywood bromance. It was like I just in Hutch, Butch Caston and Sundance Kids, that old Hollywood bromance image. There's just two guys who love each other, not sexually, but, you know, in, in a really um, brotherly way, all out about pulling the girls, but at the end of the film, they end up together rather than with the girls. And it was a very distinct image, and it was teenagers. And by the time George, by the time they'd done those three years, they could have done another year, absolutely. But sooner or later, it was going to break up. And George always planned that. George never intended to go beyond three albums. And in fact, really? in the end, it was just two albums. And Andrew the same. I mean, when they finally broke up, Andrew felt, you know, he would have rather gone on for another year too, but not more than that. You know, it's something you did did when you were young as a young person. And, you know, you said about the Beatles, they never they never really got out of being pop. Yes, they did Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper, but then they came back and did songs like Obli D, Obli Da, which were, you know, right, right back in their old pop fame. And to become rock, to move on to be adults, they had to break up, you know, so John Lennon became who we knew he was, and, and Paul McCartney went on to Wings. It's usually, it, it's a bit sad. You see a group like Take That, you know, and that was a boy group, and now it's an old man group, but they're all doing the same <laughs> songs. They're standing on stage doing teenage songs. Except Robbie Williams. Except Robbie, who sensibly left and did his own thing. I think teenage teenage groups should, you know, you can go on to your 25. You've got to say, that's it. Let's let the new blood come along, and I'll move on to something else. Well, the obviously the dynamic that uh, Andrew and George had for that, it's kind of crazy how brief it was. I, I kind of forgot how brief it was until I watched your documentary and, and the Wham! documentary. Like, holy cow, only two albums, only f really four years from that time that they did the Top of the Pops performance that caught your eye to when they hung it up at Wembley. From those two albums, they had as many number one hit and number one singles as most groups get from four albums. I mean, you know, I had six number one singles. It's pretty amazing in three years. Well, I do think as you know, and obviously we're going to talk about George's um, solo success, which is both 80s and, and goes into the, the 90s and beyond. But the dynamic that him and Andrew had, you know, you talk about this self-belief and this uh, desire for fame that George had, which, you know, maybe later he, you know, is a be careful what you wish for situation. But, you know, the self-belief he had. Did he always have that? Because obviously when you saw him on top of the pops, it looked like he did. But I'm very interested in the fact that when this band started, you know, Andrew was sort of the heartthrob or the leader. You say, did he always have it? Okay, he he went to a new school when he was 12 years old. No self-belief then. He was a podgy little guy with glasses and curly hair and spots. And when he walked in the classroom and the teacher as a new boy, all the, all the class laughed. And... Uh, and the teacher said, yeah, who's he going to sit next to? And Andrew put his hand up. And Andrew was the lad around the classroom. He's the one everybody looked up to, you know, the good-looking guy who was a bit naughty and the girls flirted with him. 
And so Andrew befriended him and sat George next to him. And George learned self-belief from Andrew. Uh, but that was self-belief in terms of projecting himself. He changed the way he looked. He made his mum buy hair straighteners and got contact lenses. Bit by bit, made himself look like another Andrew. What he discovered, apart from that, was he was great at writing songs. And so he, you know, people people complain or complain to Andrew, what does he do? He's just, you know, he just stands there pretending to play guitar and nothing to do with the group. It's not true. Wham was Andrew. The, the image of Wham was totally Andrew. It's a real Andrew and the, the fake Andrew, which was George. And the music came from George. So they're a very balanced couple. They really did provide half and half. Well, you were obviously, you know, enamored or or uh, fascinated by them when you saw them on top of the pops when they were like maybe 18 or 19 years old. But at what point did you, as you were uh, taking on Wham and, and then, you know, they were getting ready to make it big and, and George was just, you know, by leaps and bounds at this accelerated pace, becoming this great artist, songwriter, producer. Were you surprised? You might have thought you were just signing like a fun teen band. You had no idea. First time we met, we got hold of them. They agreed to come to a meeting. They walked into my flat. Uh, it was my partner, Jazz, was there and me and the two guys walked in. And we had expected them to be exactly what we saw on top of the box. You know, two happy-go-lucky guys without a thought in their head, without a care in the world. Once we saw them for real, they were completely different people. Andrew walked in, exactly the image we'd seen, sat down in the chair, put his feet on my coffee table, picked up a book, say, hey, hey, nice pad, good for pulling. And George sat down instantly, said, you want to manage us? Who have you managed? What do you do? How are you going to do it? Who's going to look after the money? He was hard and businesslike behind hmm. that exterior he which he built a sort of fake exterior and i loved that i thought this is brilliant what a they've got the perfect image and then when they come off stage they are the perfect combination you know the one who knows what he's doing and knows where they're going and the planning and the one who's just happy go lucky so i we saw it instantly that very first day wow very cool so i talk about how very young they were and about the accelerated pace of of George evolving as an artist. I would love for you to talk about the Jerry Wexler story, the Careless Whisper story, because you got to have some serious self-belief, age 20, to have the legend Jerry Wexler produce Careless Whisper, which, as as we've stated, was like a very big turning point in George's career. And at age 20, be like, nah, we're going to do this over and be right. I would love to hear your take on this whole story. Not altogether Jerry's fault. I've known Jerry a long time, since the 60s. So when I started managing Wham! and we had this song, Gillis was they'd already written, we had the demo, we knew it was going to be a hit sooner or later. I saw it as a sort of a soul song, you know, Luther Vandross type of thing. So I called Jerry and said, I'm going to send you a song, listen to it. If you like it, would you produce it? And he called right back. He said, brilliant song, lovely. Love to produce it. Come and do it in Muscle Shoals. So he booked Muscle Shoals Studio and we flew over. And went to the studio, and, and Jerry sort of tried to overawe George a bit. And said, "Oh, that's the microphone, you know, where Percy Sledge did a man loves a woman, and Aretha Franklin stood where you're standing now." And trying to make George nervous. Well, he did make George nervous, that's for sure. <laughs> and he made a, a good track. He, we used the Muscle Shoals House Band, which was oh, one of the, probably the best soul bands in the whole whole of the world. But when we got back to England, George listened to it, and, and so did we. I. And the publishers and everyone else, we said, it doesn't have it. It doesn't have the flow. It doesn't have it doesn't have that incredible quality which it needs, which the song deserves. Now, it's not really that surprising because in Muscle Shoals, that band 
play all the tracks which came out of that studio, and they probably get 60 hits a year, 60 top five records a year. But they're playing three sessions a day, three songs a session, that's nine songs a day, that's 2,500 tracks a year they're making, (laughs) and get get 60 hits. They're all brilliantly played because they're great musicians, but they don't all have magic. So one in 50 is getting magic, and we, we didn't get the one in 50. But when George redid the track in London, you know, the whole focus of all the musicians and him for that that week, if you like, was just focused on that one one hour or two hour session. And you know, when you listen to the track George made, before the voice comes in, I mean you you hear this is this is the track grabs you and it has a has a flow and a feel and a rhythm, uh, which which is uh, is mesmerizing. And and that's what makes that a hit, not just the song. It's not surprising it wasn't there. It's, if you think about it, every day they must turn out 10 ordinary tracks to one great one. Well, I think the thing that surprised me is just that, you know, given Jerry Wexler's pedigree, the Muscle Shoals pedigree, that there's a lot of 20-year-olds, new, relatively new artists. And even if they were thinking like, oh, this sounds kind of anemic or kind of, you know, and, you know, kind of weak or kind of me- too mellow or whatever you want to say, they wouldn't have the balls basically to speak up and go, I want to redo this because they would not think that they should doubt someone. So they're elders really. I don't think George would have said that to Jerry at the time. I mean, he had, he was 6,000 miles away. He got home and thought about it. And he said to his manager, call Jerry and tell him it's no good. Yeah, I don't think he'd have ever said that to Jerry to his face just because he's respectful. I mean, Jerry, incredible producer. And George yeah. was respectful, very respectful. But, um, you know, once you're away from it and you can think logically and you're not the person who's going to have to say the bad news to him, um, it becomes easier to do. And I backed him up on it. You know, I said, absolutely. How did Jerry react? Wow. Yeah, Jerry, that's right. Jerry hated it. He couldn't hear the difference. And I was really surprised because Jerry's a great producer, has a great ear. But I wrote a book about 10 years later about the music industry, and I wanted to interview Jerry. And I called him up. When I was talking to him, I said, Jerry, now with hand, hindsight, and 10 years have gone by, and you've seen how big Killers Whisper was. Can you now hear the difference and admit that you know George's track was better? He said, no, can't hear the difference. I think you did it just so you didn't have to pay me royalties. He, hadn't, he couldn't hear it. He was, well, I don't know why. His ears were gummed up on that particular track. All respect to Jerry Wexler, but I could I'm not even a musician or a production expert by any means. And I, I could hear it just I mean, how could you not? Absolutely. Because it yeah, just didn't have that oomph, that leaping out of the speakers mm-hmm. thing. But that's a testament to the ear that that George Michael had. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we have already sort of touched on a bit, but about the fact that in the Wham days, not so much once he broke out with Faith, but in the Wham days. People weren't really talking about the fact that he was basically like Prince. He was a young guy who was producing, writing, playing a lot of most or a lot of the instruments, singing amazingly, obviously. 20. I mean, wait a minute before you go, go. He was like 20. I mean, they wrote Careless Whisper when he was a teenager. I mean, why were people now we all know this, but back then it wasn't really something I was hearing on MTV or or it just, you know, people talked about Prince and some other people that way. They did not talk about George Michael as this kind of like quadruple quintuple threat of an artist that he was. Maybe they don't at the time. I mean, after you listen to the record, great record, there's a lot to take in. Here's a fabulous record. Look at this group. It's wham, aren't they fabulous? 
I don't know if you you say, you know, when Prince first had those records he was producing, were people saying, yeah, and this guy's producing and singing and arranging? I, I seem to recall that was definitely, maybe not the first record, but by the time 1999 was coming out, it was definitely like right. a known thing. For me, I knew. I didn't know about George Michael, though. Well, I mean, George, from Careless Whisper onwards, he never used a producer. He produced everything himself every, until he died, every single record. He'd learned his lesson that, that, yes, I know, he says everyone else used a producer, even Paul McCartney tried to make an album without one and had to call up in the middle of the album, get someone in. But I know my own voice. I know my limitations. and I know what I want. He was very clever at being objective and subjective. You know, he could stand back and look at himself and say, no, don't write it that way, my voice won't do it, or that would be perfect for me. He was a very rational person. But it's true. There was a thing in that once they changed in England from being this slightly socially conscious, which they never were particularly, I mean, right. that wasn't intended, it just was what the press thought, into a very hedonistic teenage group, there was a backlash in the press in the UK, which you didn't, didn't have in America. There's a, there's a thing in it, it's very, the music press in England at that time tended to be very political and didn't think it was right for you just to be carefree and have fun. Uh, in America, you accepted having fun, not just as teenagers. I mean, you can, you can go on having fun in America without people complaining. Would you say that that kind of shoddy press treatment that he got pretty early on while in Wham, and Andrew got it too, you know, the stuff you've talked about, like the derisive treatment he got that he was considered some kind of like, coattail rider or whatever but do you think this nastiness they got from the press do you i mean that's clearly from how i think it seems like that's what fueled later when he all the stuff particularly with uh listen without prejudice i know you weren't managing him at that time but you know just everything just getting rid of the image not wanting to be in the videos burning the jacket you know all of that like did he did he have a chip on his shoulder i guess is what i'm trying to ask all artists have some element of a chip on their shoulder. That's what pushes them to being artists. Nearly all performance artists come from, at some stage when they were kids, not getting love they needed at a moment when they needed from somebody. It, it, it's almost invariable. There's an elementary basic chip on the shoulder inside most artists. But in a way, that's what they expect, because that's what drove them to become artists. And that's, so it's something they know about. And so they sort of expect to meet these problems. So they've got an anger about them which is going to be expressed when those things happen, but they sort of expect it to happen too. I think, you know, bad press, and George also was someone who'd researched the music industry to the last, to the nth degree. He understood what he was doing or what songs to put out one after another. It's almost as if he expected the backlash. You know, he said, oh, here it comes. Yeah, that's what we knew. I saw it with this person and that mm -hmm. person. Now it's coming to us. So I don't think it was unexpected, but it was unpleasant because everyone loves to be loved. It's much easier your life goes on and everyone's saying how wonderful you are. Then you suddenly pick up a newspaper and someone says, you're not wonderful. It's it's a pity you don't, you don't like it. Yeah. In your documentary, The Royal George Michael, you know, which has archival interview footage, there's kind of like a later, you know, I'm not exactly sure what year, but probably somewhere in the 2000s, there's an interview with him where he's talking kind of angrily about how much he hates fame. And how, you know, like I, I said, be careful what you wish for a little while ago. You know, were you witness in those early days when the fame was, you know, it, it, it was immediate in the UK with Make It Big. It was overnight here in America. Like, were you witness to how he was already like having issues with that kind of spotlight? Well, well, Lindsay, look, most ordinary people would hate fame. And most famous people in the end find they hate it, but they also like the, the benefits it brings. Nobody really likes not being able to just walk down the street or go for a 
walk with a dog or jogging or walking into a supermarket. You know, you don't have a private life ever again. And that goes with the territory. And George just seemed to dislike it more than most other people. And he, he found it more difficult to balance all the benefits. And he liked all the benefits of it with the downside. But, you know, right at the beginning when you manage an artist, you explain to them. You, you explain where they're going. They're not going somewhere nice. They think it's going to be nice. and They'll have lots of money. And they do get the love they didn't get when they needed it as a kid. And now they're going to get it. But for everyone who loves you, there's somebody else who's jealous and doesn't like you. So you explain it to them right at the beginning. It's not all going to be fun. Andrew understood that, which is why he's quite happy to withdraw. He'd had his fun. He, he left before he suffered any of that. Mm. George couldn't. I mean, it was in his, in his soul, in his being. He had to go on being what he was. And yes, once Wham were over and he was a solo artist, he did begin to hate it. But that was also, at the beginning, was very much linked to knowing he was gay and not knowing when he should come out or how to come out and being afraid of the press as much as he disliked them. I mean, he was he was cheating them, and he knew that. He didn't like that. He loved he loved to be honest and frank and out forthright. And whenever he spoke to the press, he always made a point of saying how blunt and forthright he was, and he didn't cover things up. And he knew he was covering something up. So he was sort of complicit in his own problems with them and was aware of that. Well, I'd love to talk with you more about that, because famously we know this from the documentaries that are out now, that he came out to Andrew and to Shirley in Ibiza when they were doing the Club Tropicana video. And there was a conversation which maybe ties into your whole thing about not getting enough love as a child, where they were basically recommending that he not come out to not um, upset his father, his conservative traditional father. So a decision was made then that had ramifications for the next for the rest of his life, really, but certainly for the next 15, 16 years till he was, you know, effectively outed when he decided to not live in the public eye as an out gay man. It was a crossroads, basically. So I, you know, were you privy to any of this, these conversations? Did you know, did you have, conver- you, you know, you're, you're openly gay yourself. Did you have conversations about what he was going through with him? No, I, I I knew he was gay, and he knew I knew he was gay. We never talked about it directly. Really, I th- I thought if he didn't want to talk about it, you know, he, he, I mean, he'd obviously one of the reasons he wanted him as his manager because he thought he'd be comfortable with somebody who's gay. And if he didn't want to discuss it, it's his business. It wasn't really a lot to do with Wham. I mean, the image of Wham wasn't a gay image, right? And he, and I did occasionally have sort of oblique conversations with him and say things like, you know, George, if one day you or maybe Andrew, you know, decided perhaps you maybe you were gay or weren't quite sure, you know, you'd get all my support, whichever thing you want to do. If you want to come out or you want to, you, to, you shouldn't worry about it. You can talk to me about it and be fine. And, you know, it just I let him know it was there to be talked about. But he obviously made his mind up. So I, I didn't discuss it with him. He's obviously decided Wham's. I'm going to stay in while Wham's going on, and afterwards I'll come out. What he didn't do, of course, is come out immediately. He broke up with Andrew, which is sort of what he planned to do, I think. Oh. But then he sort of lost his nerve. When he, the idea of going solo was that I don't have the pressure anymore of having to pretend. But, of course, the temptation of fame and faith, <laughs> both those temptations, kept him in the closet for another year or two. But by the end of faith, well, jumping forwards, you know, he was only in the closet to the media and his and his parents. I mean, all mm. his friends knew. Mm. Well, I feel like there's so much more to get into about George Michael. I feel like we've only just kind of begun to take this deep dive, but we're running out of time. Is it possible? 
I could ask you to come back for a part two. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Why not? Fantastic. I am very excited about that. Sorry for the wham pun. I couldn't resist. Thank you. We'll be back for part two with George Michael and wham manager Simon Napier-Bell, who is the director of the documentary, The Real George Michael, now available to stream on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, and other platforms. In the meantime, remember to give Tolly 80s a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and I'll catch you next time with Simon Napier-Bell. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Bye.